1: It's
0: Monday, March 13th, 2017, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Indre Viscontis.
1: And I'm Kishore Hari. Each week, we bring you a new, in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters.
0: You can find us online at motherjones.com inquiringminds or inquiringshow.tumblr.com. You can also find us on Twitter at Inquiring Show and Facebook, and you can subscribe to the show on iTunes or any other podcasting app. Back on episode 46, we talked to Tara Smith, who's an epidemiologist and Ebola expert, on why the threat of infection in the U.S. was overblown. And to accompany that episode, Chris Mooney, who was co-host at the time, wrote an online piece highlighting some of Donald Trump's tweets in August of 2014, including these three. He said, Doctors have already died treating Ebola, and we should not be importing the disease to our homeland. He also tweeted, our government now imports illegal immigrants and deadly diseases. Our leaders are inept. And finally, the bigger problem with Ebola is all of the people coming into the US from West Africa who may be infected with the disease and then in caps, stop flights, exclamation point.
1: So there's a few problems there. Uh, West Africa isn't where <laughs> Ebola's from. Let's start there. Let's not blame <laughs> Ebola epidemics on immigrants. yes. <laughs> but isn't it true that did, didn't did doctors die in the process of treating Ebola?
0: Yes, they did. And in fact, we are going to, on today's episode, talk to a doctor who was there on the front lines, but... Also, back in episode 57, we talked to Dr. Dan Kelly, who is an infectious disease doc who was in Sierra Leone at the time. This was in October of 2014, treating patients on the ground. And he said the same thing, that, you know, essentially, yes, this is very serious. Yes, this situation is very serious. But that, you know, the worry is not so much of these doctors coming back and infecting people in the U.S. The worry is about eradicating things on the ground. So... Just last week, a new memoir by Stephen Hatch, who is an assistant professor of medicine at the University of Massachusetts Medical School and a specialist in infectious diseases and immunology, published, documenting his work in Liberia during the height of the epidemic in 2014. It's aptly called Inferno, and it brings up issues not only of what it was like to fight a deadly and very scary disease, the history and trajectory of the disease, which was really new and interesting to me, but also how politics in the U.S. and other resource-rich countries can directly contribute to outbreaks
1: like that one. I remember, Stephen, from a number of pieces in the New York Times. And one of the ones that was most affecting was this like little video vignette they created where you watched him get dressed for just treating all of these patients. And it was this exceptional piece of work where he put on multiple layers like three or four pairs of gloves, like gown head to toe, no piece of his body exposed whatsoever. And it seemed like he had to do that multiple times a day. And it it was extraordinary to watch because it just gave you one hint. And then there's extraordinary photography in some of these pieces of him carrying children in and out of the ward that is Heartbreaking, especially in the context of the numbers that we're seeing with you know ten thousand people dying at the height of the epidemic.
0: Yeah, I mean you know, and all of that is because, of course, depending on uh, which strain of the virus we're talking about, Ebola can kill nine out of ten patients, or you know, in in a sort of slightly lesser virulent strain, sixty seven percent of patients. But that's still you know their chances of outliving the, the virus are, are not good. And it can spread relatively easily. So I wanted to talk to Stephen Hatch and find out, you know, is this still something that we need to worry about very much today? Is the pandemic over? How did it end? Do you know, do w- what should we be doing moving forward? And how do travel restrictions affect the sort of wave of viruses going and, you know, going around the world. I mean, on the one hand, you could argue, well, we don't want people to travel because then they won't spread the viruses. On the other hand, if you don't allow doctors to travel, then you can't go to places where people just are too poor in order to stop those viruses from spreading. So that'll be our interview for today. But first, let's take a short break. And then we'll be back with my conversation with Stephen Hatch. Support for this podcast comes from Toyota and their new 2017 Highlander. If you're like me, when the weekend comes, you don't want to just sit around the house. You want to get out with the family, explore new places or try new things. Maybe check out a science museum, hit a festival or just head out to nature. The new Toyota Highlander is the perfect vehicle for discovery. It starts on the outside with its sleek design and aggressive new front grille that say you've got an attitude for adventure. Its improved powertrain makes it more fun to drive and more fuel efficient than ever. And one of my favorite features is driver easy speak which lets you broadcast what you say to the rear seats so your passengers can hear you. Doesn't mean they'll listen, but at least they can hear you. So navigate to your nearest Toyota dealer or Toyota.com and see why there's always more to discover in the new 2017 Highlander. Welcome to Inquiring Minds, Stephen Hatch.
2: Thank you very much for having me.
0: So your story is really fascinating and in some ways is even more relevant today as we have all kinds of uh, people that aren't being let into the country, uh, but also the Zika virus pandemic pending and so forth. And I want to get to, you know, how you feel about the current status of the day. But let's start out with before even the Ebola pandemic, uh, that is the topic of your book, began, you're already in Liberia. So how did you get there?
2: So I went into infectious disease in large part because I wanted to do work in uh, the international arena. And in particular, I was interested in Africa. And so while discussing that work with uh, some of my supervisors, as I was just doing career planning, I said that I wanted to go to Ghana because uh, I work in the city of Worcester, Massachusetts, which has a very large Ghanaian population. And my boss said to me, well, he said, I, I get why you want to go to Ghana, but actually we we don't do any work in Ghana, but we have some people who are doing work in Liberia. What do you think about going there? And this was in late 2013, just before the outbreak had started. And at, at the time, I, I was a little deflated uh, because I really was more interested in going to a place where I knew I could uh, work with people back in Worcester as well as working with them in Ghana. Uh, so I went to Liberia. And I really uh, was welcomed by the people there, and and had a great experience in November of 2013, which was just about six weeks before the outbreak started. And so uh, that was that was how I first landed there. It was really, frankly, by accident.
0: So what? Where were you in a small town? Were you in a in a large town in a hospital? Tell us a little bit about that work.
2: Oh yeah, I worked in uh, the JFK Hospital in Monrovia. Uh, Monrovia is the capital city of Liberia. The country is about – has a population of about four million people and about a million and a half live in the greater Monrovia area. JFK used to be its principal hospital. It was built with money uh, that was donated by the Kennedy family in the late 1960s as a, uh, a testament to the commitment of not only the United States but in particular the Kennedy family and the Kennedy administration to maintaining good ties with Liberia as a former American colony. and uh, JFK, like many other institutions in Liberia, had really been decimated by the Liberian Civil War, which lasted from the late 1980s into the early 2000s. So by the time I went there, it was really a shadow of its former self and it was just trying to get back online and had been really reopened and operating as a normal hospital for just under 10 years when I went there.
0: And so you went there as an infectious disease specialist. What, what kind of cases were you seeing before the outbreak?
2: The common cases that you see throughout what we call the resource-limited areas of sub-Saharan Africa fall into three major categories, uh, at least in terms of infectious disease. Uh, that's tuberculosis, HIV, and malaria, There are a variety of other kinds of illnesses that people get, but one of the challenges of working in an area like this is that because they can't afford healthcare that has lots of opportunities to find out what sorts of diseases there are, we don't actually know what the percentage is of people who have malaria versus some other kind of illness that we could easily diagnose here in the United States with our advanced laboratories. So as a consequence, a lot of it's just guesswork and uh, giving antibiotics or antimalarials in situations where you think somebody has something, but you don't really know.
0: And that's what kind of struck me, actually, about the patient zero story for the Ebola um, epidemic that then came on. So, you know, can you tell us a little bit about how we know patient zero, uh, who, who that was. And, you know, it, it seems like from the beginning of that story that even within that family, people weren't, people didn't know that this was the beginning of a much more, uh, you know, much, much worse virus than what they're usually exposed to.
2: Yeah, that's right. Um, patient zero, it was a, was a child, uh, about a two-year-old named Emil Wamunu. And he lived in a village in the rural outposts of a province in Nzerekoré, And the name of the village was Gekadu. It was a very small little village. And we know only in retrospect through contact tracing that was aided in part by the uh, Ministry of Health in Guinea by tracing back contacts of people who became ill throughout early uh, 2014, and Emil Wamunu had fallen ill with what appeared to be a diarrheal illness. And uh, commonly in that part of the world, uh, children often uh, die. About uh, just under one in ten children die before their fifth birthday. And uh, it was initially thought that uh, Emil Wamunu had died of some kind of a diarrheal disease, of which there are many. The most famous of which, to people who aren't doctors, is cholera. And cholera can spread from person to person. And initially, the family of Emil Wamunu also fell ill, and several of the people within the family had passed away. So when the uh, Ministry of Health in Guinea was uh, started to take notice of it in the province, they thought it was it was uh, quite possibly cholera, because that region had never before seen an Ebola outbreak. Ebola. Typically, was a disease uh, that was seen in Central Africa, which is really 3,000 miles away from Guinea, and it was initially mistaken uh, for uh, a cholera outbreak. And it wasn't until some uh, physicians and clinicians with who were working for Doctors Without Borders uh, noticed that the features of this did not match cholera and thought that it might be uh, Ebola. But by that point, uh, three months had passed.
0: And so, how do people typically get Ebola? I mean, I think I think the thing that's different about this particular outbreak is just the sheer scale of it. Um, but Ebola isn't. This isn't the first time that Ebola has been, you know, present there. Obviously, so uh, typically, how does it? How how do people? How does it start?
2: So, Ebola. Nobody really knows where the the reservoir of the virus is. We think that bats may be the reservoir as we've been able to find the genetic signature of Ebola in bats, and we have also been able to cultivate the virus uh, in uh, a few species of bats. Um, But what we don't know is whether bats are the primary host or whether they themselves are secondary hosts. Um, There are two principal ways of Ebola jumping into humans. One is through bats, direct contact with either bats or their droppings. And then the second way is if bats infect another animal that can in turn infect humans. Uh, So chimpanzees or other primates are susceptible to Ebola just like humans are. And in Central Africa, it is not uncommon for people who live in very rural areas to eat bushmeat of of non-human primates, and so that is another way in which they can become infected. Once people become infected, then they can pass the infection to each other through all body fluids, um, through sweat, through blood, through vomit, uh, through feces and diarrhea. And what we would later find out in this outbreak is uh, that they could also pass it along through semen uh, months, months later, even after people had recovered.
0: Wow! So you've now come home from your time in uh, Liberia, and what you know, what was the first indicator to you that something, you know, was 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 really different about what was going on and in, um, in that part of
2: the world? Um, different in the sense of what was. Well, ha-
0: yeah, that you know that there have been Ebola outbreaks before, but you know, was it was it just through the news that you realized that this is just the sheer number of cases does is different from what we've experienced in the past, or um, was it something else?
2: Yeah. So I um so the thing that really turned for me when I really realized that w- what we were seeing was something that we had never seen before, was when I saw the first reports of the disease uh, surfacing in, in Monrovia. Um, prior to the West African outbreak of 2014, there had been about 20 Ebola known Ebola outbreaks dating back to the late 1970s, and most of them never got beyond uh, several dozen people. There were a couple of larger outbreaks that got into the hundreds. One of which happened in a town in Zaire or a city in Zaire known as Kikwit. Uh, And the population of Kikwit was about 200,000 people. And at the time, in 1994, uh, that outbreak was the largest known Ebola outbreak at the time. And it had generated substantial alarm in the international health community. Monrovia is 10 times the size. Of Kikwit, roughly speaking. And so once I realized that it was in a city as densely packed as Monrovia, as ill equipped to deal with it as Monrovia, in a place that had just survived a civil war, where being skeptical about what the government told you uh, was often a life saving strategy um, only 10 or 15 years previously. Um, It was sort of a a perfect storm and that was just what was going on in Liberia. There was also uh, the same outbreak now had spread over three borders uh, into Sierra Leone and Guinea where the outbreak had started and no one had ever seen anything like that before. So people were responding to the outbreak by crossing the borders, uh, attempting to flee. So one way of thinking about it is that what was new about this Uh, outbreak was that it wasn't really just one outbreak. It wasn't just in one small location uh, where multiple people had had it. Ebola outbreaks often start in villages and you can contain a village. It's one place. You can direct the resources to that village. But this was happening in, in three different countries with a total population of 22 million people. So the way to think about it really was that it was a meta outbreak. And I first started to understand it as that in the early summer of 2014, um, which was about six months after I had visited Monrovia for the first time.
0: So now that you've, you were in the States again, and you realize that this is a very different outbreak because of the density of the population, what made you decide to go back?
2: You know, if you've ever spent time in a resource poor place, you understand the challenges that face people who, you know, just have the misfortune of being in a place that where infrastructure is just poorly developed. And I knew that I had a certain amount of expertise that I could offer that could make a difference. And the other thing that, so one, one aspect was just, you know, the realization that, I could actually have an impact on what was going on in what had previously been, an, you know, an un or what was an unprecedented uh, outbreak in terms of the fact that it was crossing international boundaries and um, affecting significantly more people than it had ever been seen before. The other thing was when I had been to Liberia, everybody had treated me with such kindness. And as I began to understand something about the relationship between uh, Liberia and the United States and between Liberians and Americans, I felt bound by an obligation that I feel like we as Americans have, particularly to a country that was our former colony with which we have had very close ties uh, ever since its inception in 1847. And so at that point, I just felt like it was incumbent upon me to go and do what I could.
0: So what do you do? I mean, you know, we can't, there's no cure, right? And you know the death rate is going to be pretty high because this particular strain was really, is it, you know, is virulent the right word?
2: Virulent is definitely the right word. Uh, It is true that there is no cure uh, in the sense that there, or at least at the time that there was a specific treatment that was aimed at the Ebola virus. There were ways of softening the mortality rate, um, which from the standpoint of a patient, they would call that a cure, the patients who survived that might not otherwise have survived uh, with uh, some care. And also, an Ebola outbreak is as much a public health emergency as it is an emergency to the patients themselves. And so, simply by engaging in the act of Ebola care, by taking care of patients and not having them out in the community, you were reducing the impact that it was having within the community by, by reducing the spread of the virus. Um, and so as much as the Ebola treatment units were directed at trying to do what we could to keep the mortality as low as possible, we were also trying to take the virus out of circulation to prevent its further spread.
0: So how do you do that? I mean, give us, give us a sort of typical day uh, on the job.
2: So the interesting thing, and and one of the things that was very comforting about when I first came to work in an Ebola treatment unit, which was not in Monrovia, but it was uh, in uh, rural Liberia near the, fairly close to the border of Guinea, was that it really is a hospital, and it works just like a hospital. And as a doctor, I'm intimately familiar with the rhythms and the pace of a hospital, and what was really critical to the care of patients was that we didn't regard them as being something different, but we regarded them as patients and that what we were doing was exactly what we do back home. Obviously, the, the way in which the virus can spread changes the rules of engagement because you have to wear personal protective equipment, what most of us refer to as the spacesuits. And, um, and you needed to be very, very careful Once you were inside the the Ebola treatment unit taking care of patients, you wanted to ensure that you didn't get fluids splashed all over you, you wanted to limit that as much as you could, you didn't want to get scratched, you didn't want to fall and tear your suit, but that what you did in the morning was you got up and you reviewed how the patients had fared overnight, who was sick, who was doing better. And we used to round. We would round just like we round in a hospital here. We would collect their vital signs. We would give out medications. Um, some of those medications we hoped were going to have an impact on their disease, even though they were not uh, specific medications for Ebola. And um, and rounds usually took a couple hours. And then you also just did what doctors everywhere do during rounds, which is to try to comfort our patients.
0: Mhm. And you know, but so, some doctors did get infected. You know, what do you think happened in those cases? Was it, you know, somebody fell or was it they didn't they didn't have the right equipment?
2: There so the infection rate of healthcare workers working in the Ebola treatment units that had adequate preparation Turned out to be give or take, and I haven't followed the numbers carefully since the end of the outbreak. But I think it was about one in a hundred, um, and I think in most cases it, it just boiled down to bad luck. Um, the The spacesuits that we wore, the personal protective gear, was was good, but it wasn't airtight, and so it is conceivable that uh, people got infected because all it takes is you know a particle of Ebola riding a a bead of sweat on a patient that gets onto your suit and then slides in through the cracks. And if you happen to have just nicked your skin, um, that's all that it takes for a microscopic virus to get inside somebody's skin. So it it minimized your risk uh, by a degree, but it wasn't a perfect 100% degree. And I think something like, I don't know, I want to say about six or seven people got infected in the course of their duties, caring for patients um, in the high-level facilities that, uh, that had been built. So the risk tur- out of about 700 workers during the, the six months of the height of the epidemic. So it turned out to be about a one in 100 risk.
0: And it, you know, it did seem at at one point in the epidemic that this was really something that could become a global phenomenon and and really just wipe out a big proportion of our population, and then that didn't happen. So, can you tell us why that didn't happen?
2: Yeah, th- I mean, I think that's one of the most interesting aspects of the outbreak and how public health uh, people had to deal with uh, unknown variables at the time. Because this was an unprecedented outbreak, because no one had seen Ebola in thousands of people before, what we didn't know is what the true transmission dynamics were. and What that means is, is that public health uh, epidemiologists have a, a special variable that they calculate when they try to figure out how a disease spreads through populations. It's called R naught, um, and actually, it gets mentioned uh, in um, in the movie Contagion, uh, where the Kate Winslet character uh, actually does a little speech about what R naught means, and all it means is it's a number that estimates how many people, on average, get infected by a person who is infected, and when in late August, early September of 2014. When the number crunchers were sitting down trying to figure out how many people would get infected during this outbreak, they had to make some estimates about what the R-naught of Ebola was. And The problem is, unlike many, many other diseases where we have tens of thousands of people who get infected every year, like influenza, where you're able to actually make very good calculations about how many people get infected on average nobody really knew how many people would get infected by Ebola. And so what they did was they calculated different values for r naught, and tried to estimate what was going to happen. And at the lower end, they figured that maybe 20,000 people might get infected. A medium scenario was that a few hundred thousand people would get infected. And then at the higher end, they had estimated that as many as possibly the, the worst case scenario was that 1.4 million people would get infected. And it's all resulting from the fact that we had never seen it before. So we were making the best guess that we could as to how likely it was that this virus was going to spread.
0: And so how did it? it just was a matter of we were able to contain it before that happened? Or were there some infrastructure changes that were implemented that you know, were
2: effective. I think that's, you know, that's a question that's going to um, occupy the work of researchers for the next generation. Um, my own, my own non-quantified take, just my my gut sense, is that it was a combination, largely speaking, of three variables. The first variable was, fortunately, the spread of the virus was not. It, it was not as communicable a virus as we had originally feared, so it was it, it things shaded more toward the better case scenarios. Uh, the second thing was the work of the Ebola treatment units and the work of the local healthcare infrastructure that did exist in the three countries, and the ability for public education. And then finally, the third thing was is that ultimately most people uh, in the affected countries really got on board and bought in to the public health messages. And I think if that hadn't happened, if people continued to mistrust the public pronouncements of the ministries of health of these countries, there's an extremely high chance that the virus would have persisted and possibly gone into a much larger outbreak than we had seen.
0: And you know we are at a time when there's much more travel so there's obviously much more potential for viruses to spread into different parts of the world. Um but there also seems to be a bit of I mean I don't really know quite a, how to put this delicately but sort of prejudice against uh people in African countries um and you know this this idea that you know there's there's a reason why those viruses spread there. Um can you talk a little bit about, you know, are there infrastructure things that really we need to change in order to prevent viruses from having such a big impact in Africa? Or is it about messaging um, about, you know, people like, for example, you talk about um, a, a uh, tradition of touching bodies of people that have passed away? Or is it something else?
2: Yeah. Um, well, to, to actually, just to come back around on on your question about touching people uh, is when I referred to the buy-in that came from the local communities, one of the most important things involved uh, a a deeply sacred uh, rite of passage in uh, West African culture is that um, when people pass away, their body is prepared uh, by – relatives and family and it is a common gesture to touch uh uh bodies uh that have of, of people who have passed away as part of uh funeral rites and we knew that if you had died of ebola and you were touched by by families even after you had passed away you could pass the infection along and to not do that to not uh, engage in that gesture uh from a cultural standpoint, was in, would have been regarded as uh, the height of rudeness before 2014. But during the outbreak, um, public health authorities really managed to convince local populations not to engage in this right. It would, in the West, it would be the equivalent of refusing to shake people's hands. And, um, and eventually, um, local communities did buy into that. So I think that's one of the ways in which uh, there was an appreciable impact on the, the transmission of the outbreak um overall i think the wests or the uh resource rich world sometimes referred to as global north uh with sub saharan africa um very much involves the development of infrastructure and the willingness to commit resources for both disease surveillance and treatment um and africa um, m- many parts of sub saharan africa lack this and uh that is a problem, and I think it's a problem that is too often ignored, and I think it isn't dealt with at a, a level that is really helpful because we let metaphors dominate the conversation where Ebola becomes the scary African virus, um, even though there are actually plenty of viruses whose notoriety should be almost as bad. But there's something extra in Ebola. And I think it's related in part to the fact that it's a sub-Saharan African virus.
0: You know, it seems even though, or it seems like now that at least the politics in the U.S. have been turning inward, uh, that, that you know, there is a, a national trend, I, I guess, I don't know how to put it, of, you know, putting ourselves first and not worrying about other nations. And yet, when there is so much travel happening and there are these viruses that are deadly that can now spread um it is in our interest to make sure that uh when there is a pandemic like the one in Africa for Ebola that we go and and you know prevent it from spreading so what do you think would be different under this administration if the same thing happened
2: i'm very concerned about uh what would happen i think uh, when you turn your back on international health crises particularly particularly in places where uh, those governments cannot muster the same kinds of resources uh, that the u s or the european government um, or or China uh, can bring to bear on a problem and if you just turn your back on these countries and and say you know We're going to leave you to your own devices. The likelihood that you will have unintended consequences, uh, which would involve people fleeing, using their influence and authority to flee uh, places, some of whom themselves may be infected, uh, leading to the virus popping up in places that is uh, surprising. I think is very high. Um, Additionally, uh, we live in an interdependent world right now. And uh, a lot of the livelihoods of tens of millions of not just Americans, but Europeans and Chinese and Russians and Indians and people from all over the world um, are economically tied to each other in certain ways. One of the things that hasn't been talked a lot about as part of the West African outbreak, the focus has understandably been on Liberia, Guinea, and Sierra Leone. But there was actually a small outbreak of Ebola during this period in Lagos, Nigeria, as well as a, a smaller city in Nigeria whose name escapes me at the moment. But uh, Lagos is a city of 22 million people and is the hub of all sub Saharan African travel. And if It had gotten out of control in Nigeria. What you would have seen is no longer a problem that could have just stopped at a border. It would have shut down uh, travel for hundreds of thousands of people and would have affected all of the people who are involved in any kind of international trade, uh, of which there's so much more than there was even a generation or two ago and that would have had real consequences economically and you could have had in the face of a biological disaster an economic disaster as well
0: and there were even people during the outbreak who you know were advocating for banning uh anyone who had including doctors gone to sub-saharan africa and and tried to help from coming back into the u.s um was did that affect you? How did how did the people that you, you know, are around uh, back in at home react to what you had gone and done?
2: So once I was already over there when the worst of uh what I would describe as the American hysteria over Ebola happened because I arrived I left uh September thirtieth, uh which was or, or thereabouts, September twenty ninth. September 30th, October 1st, which was the day that uh, Thomas Eric Duncan, who was a Liberian national, uh, had become symptomatic and was found to be infected with Ebola in Dallas, at Dallas Presbyterian Hospital. And so that was the first in a number of news pieces that really heightened the anxiety that Americans felt about Ebola. By that point, I was already over in Liberia. So I was watching that anxiety grip the country. And so my decision had already been made. It was the decisions of people who were thinking about coming over, uh, the kind of people who were going to end up replacing me and the work that I did. Um, and I imagine that, that many, many of those providers, after watching the reaction of anger uh, that was directed at people like Casey Hickox who was the returning nurse who had been detained by Governor Chris Christie in New Jersey, um, even though she never was infected, uh, but she had come back to the US right after Craig Spencer, who was a doctor who had uh, served in Sierra Leone in an Ebola treatment unit, had become infected in New York City, um, or he had become infected in Sierra Leone, but he uh, developed the illness in New York City. And, it was the people who came afterwards that I think really had some tough decisions, and I talked to some of those people, and you know they were, they were concerned that they were going to lose their jobs, they were concerned that they might face uh, uh, violence from local communities, uh, and they had really some very tough decisions that they had to make. I was lucky in that I came from an institution that was supportive of me, but not everybody uh, had that, that kind of luxury.
0: So what are your fears over the next few years? I mean, it does seem like we are making some inroads in terms of finding a vaccine for Ebola, for example. I think there are at least three drugs that are in clinical trials at the moment, um, or three vaccines, I should say. Is that still scary, or is it something else that is occupying your anxiety?
2: Yeah, I mean, um, the good news about Ebola is that, and, and what I really came to understand about living through it in Liberia is that it's actually a hard virus to to transmit. And so I I can't say that we'll never see anything like we what we saw in the West African outbreak, but I think the likelihood that Ebola represents the next great biological threat is probably not very high. But what that masks is a deeper problem that really requires an open approach, which is that there's going to be some next big thing out there, and we don't know what that thing is, and we don't know where it's going to come from, we can make some guesses as to what are the more likely places, and I think probably, you know, resource-limited areas where governments cannot survey and contain new biological threats um, are That's the most likely place where it's going to start, and if we don't direct resources to those places, we increase the chance uh, that we're going to have uh, a pandemic. The biggest pandemic threat that most worries me is some kind of a dangerous uh, virus. It's typically a virus, although there are bacteria that are uh, equally concerning, Um, but a virus that can be passed through air. The most recent one that we saw in a major international outbreak was SARS uh, in 2003, which had come from uh, Eastern Asia. Uh, there's also avian influenza, or even just a, a very bad strain of uh, routine human influenza uh, could do a great deal of damage, uh, as it happened 100 years ago uh, in 1918, when there was uh, a great influenza pandemic that killed millions of people. I think that's what concerns me most. And what worries me the most about it is government response. And I think turning your back and hoping that the problem will go away or rejecting the expertise of people who can guide you through the problem is what I think is a recipe for disaster. And I think one of the most concerning issues uh, about the current administration is what appears to be a hostility to expertise that could create bigger problems than uh, ones that already exist.
0: Well, I want to remind our listeners that Stephen Hatch's book, Inferno, a doctor's Ebola story, which is a riveting account of his time in Liberia, is now available at booksellers everywhere. Stephen, thank you so much for being on Inquiring Minds.
2: Thank you so much
1: for having me. I guess for all the news about Ebola, what struck me was something really early on in your interview, and that's, we still don't know entirely where it came from, but we suspect it's bat colonies that led to the initial transmission to, and I've read elsewhere, that led to a child and how they were able to track it back to an index case.
0: Yeah, let let me just read you the first couple sentences of chapter one. This is a horror story, and if someone from Central Casting were pulling the strings, this horror story begins with a small child happily playing right outside his home. There's this big tree in this village where Patient Zero was playing, and there were bats living in that tree, and they were pooping on the floor, and the child was playing amongst the poop. And that's, you know, one hypothesis of how this particular epidemic started.
1: It's both amazing that we could even track it back that far. And terrifying because there's no part of that story, like bats living in a tree and just pooping outside of a home, that gives you the gives you any sense that Africa is a, a piece of this story that could happen anywhere.
0: Yeah, and I don't, you know, and again, I don't think that you know the, the difference is is that you know perhaps we, you know, he talks about in the book, we didn't get to it in the interview, but, you know, just sort of how there wasn't enough water for people to wash themselves and, you know, help prevent the spread of disease. So, so yes, you know, anybody, anywhere could get infected, but whether it would lead to 10,000 people getting infected so quickly, that's a resource issue.
1: What do you think about this rapid response uh, that doctors have to go through? Because they're both there. And we heard so many stories of it in the interview of being they have to be doctors, but at the same time, they're fighting cultural and societal issues that are really tantamount to stopping the outbreak. And that's not who they are either.
0: Yeah, except that I think that that's such a good argument for organizations like Doctors Without Borders who have been around for decades. You know, it's not like, you know, someone's a single doctor is going to go and like pop down in somewhere, you know, in Africa and try to fix the problem themselves, right? You have organizations that have a history of being there, of, of making, of understanding the culture, like understanding the, the, the different um, rituals that people engage in. And then I think that also might help foster trust in the communities there if they see the same people or at least the same, something being similar, uh, something being consistent, coming in and helping. Uh, that can do a lot.
1: I think there's probably so many lessons from this outbreak that we're gonna have to draw upon over the next decade i we know that this isn't going to be the last outbreak of our lives it probably won't be the 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 only outbreak we hear about this year and it's uh there's some strong lessons to be learned and uh i actually think you know when we see this kind of pandemic outbreak from a different continent how the story will unfold differently.
0: Yeah, and Stephen is a great writer. I mean, it's, his book is hard to put down. It's, it's really amazing. So if this interests you, I highly recommend checking it out. So that's it for another episode. I want to thank you for joining us for this installment of Inquiring Minds. And we'd like to thank our supporters on our Patreon campaign, especially David Noel, Michael Galgool, Kyle Rahala, Joel Jonathan Worsley, Yushi Lin, Eric Clark, John Kirk, Jordan Millar, Herring Chen, Sean Johnson, and Nick Cadillac. You can visit our website at inquiringshow.tumblr.com and you can support us at patreon.com inquiringminds. You can also find us on Twitter at inquiringshow and Facebook and you can send us comments, feedback, future guest ideas or anything else you'd like to inquiringminds at climatedesk.org.
1: Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac in cooperation with The Climate Desk a journalistic collaboration in partnership with many media outlets. Our music is provided by award-winning producer Rian Sheehan.
0: And we're your hosts. I'm Andre Viscontis, and you can find me on Twitter at Indre
1: And I'm Kishore Hari at Science Quiche. See you next week.
0: If you have an extra minute, please go to podcastsurvey.org to take a very short, anonymous survey about today's episode. It would be a big help to the show, and I'd appreciate it. Again, that's podcastsurvey.org for the quick survey to help our show.
1: Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it every time.